This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. As the recent financial crisis has showed so dramatically, networks exist everywhere. Global interlinkage of loans and mortgages, which were intended to distribute risk, actually ended up spreading it far and wide. Similar network-based impacts are at work in fields as diverse as information security and supply chain management. But while networks create new risk, they also generate new opportunities, write Paul R. Kleindorfer, Yoram Jerry Wind, and Robert E. Gunther in their new book, The Network Challenge, Strategy, Profit, and Risk in an Interlinked World. In an interview with Knowledge at Wharton, Kleindorfer and Wind discussed the themes of many of the 28 essays in their book. Paul and Jerry, thank you so much for joining us uh, for the Knowledge at Wharton podcast today. It's our delight. Thank you. We're very happy to do so, Mukul. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you about uh, the network challenge, strategy, profit, and risk in an interlinked world, which is your new book uh, published by Wharton School Publishing. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, why such a book is needed at this time? Uh, why are networks so important and what kind of challenges and opportunities do they create for business enterprises? There are systemic issues that have been become very apparent in the, uh, in the financial crisis that we're a part of now. That's certainly just one indicator of the, the reason why network-based strategies on the profit and risk side are becoming crucial. Uh, there are also very interesting developments uh, uh, on the uh, political and institutional side uh, that uh, are perhaps captured best in the current debate about climate change, uh, the uh, Waxman bill that was just reported out yesterday in Congress, uh, various elements of uh, the U.S. Uh, interlinked with uh, uh, China, India, the rest of the world, and certainly Europe in the carbon-based economy, and uh, big debates about where they where where that's going. All of this suggests that um, the that companies are more than ever linked to the profitability, uh, the viability, the health, and resilience of the networks that they're a part of and no longer should nor can ignore these network effects in their strategy, in their assessment of uh, where opportunities lie for markets or where risks or threats lie, for example, for political or regulatory intervention. So just to mention those two very uh, salient aspects of the debate uh, or the current landscape uh, that uh, are in front, I think, of all of us at this point. Let me add that uh, in addition to these, I think we have to look at some fundamental shift that's happening in society. And um, central to them is uh, the dynamics of uh, the consumers. Consumers are becoming much more empowered. And in recent years, and especially as a result of the crisis, uh, you see lack of trust and confidence in institutions. And consumers tend to rely more and more on themselves. And um, part of the explanation for the enormous growth in social networking. Uh, at the same time, um, 
increasingly because of the interdependency around the world and uh, what started the outsourcing and the like, you have a huge need of corporation to start moving beyond thinking just on the corporation by itself, but the corporation and its partners as part of a supply chain and um, moving much more into realizing the importance of managing a network of companies. And uh, that's really part of the motivation that, you know, we see the phenomena out there, uh, and uh, how do we address it? How do we identify the opportunities, the risks, how to manage it more effectively, what are the implications? And the reason for the timeliness of this book is that um, network is not a new phenomena and has been addressed by many, many disciplines over the years. And this is the first effort, at least that I'm aware of, to bring together the experts from diverse set of disciplines in one place to explore what, what do we know about their studies, their research, their experience with networks, and what can we learn from this that will help us manage better networks and address the risk and opportunities embedded in them. Uh, that That's a great point. And I, I know, for example, that your book draws upon uh, the growing body of research on network phenomena in all kinds of fields, not just in business, but also in fields like biology, infectious diseases, and so on. Could you explain how you see the connection between these uh, areas? There are uh, interesting connections at, uh, at several levels. First, uh, the fundamental change, if you will, uh, in moving from a firm-centric uh, strategy or perspective to a net-centric uh, perspective is one that, uh, that recognizes the additional complexity associated with networks that is really not a part of the firm-centric, solipsistic perspective, if you will, of strategy. And that complexity uh, is very important in, uh, in terms of the consequences for whether one views uh, a company as master of its destiny and able to determine exactly what the rules of play are going to be, or whether it views itself as a part of, part of a, a pulsating uh, organic system of multiple partners, as Jerry was just explaining in his comments. And the, the one leads you to a view of a, kind of a, a single hero on a white stallion, and the other uh, leads you to a view of, let's say, um, a worthy group of uh, noble participants uh, moving together, but hopefully uh, coordinated and knowledgeable about uh, the other participants on, if you will, the field of play. So the first thing is the complexity issue. And the second uh, thing that we derive that is really important from, for example, artificial intelligence, biology, some of the work on social networks, uh, are the unexpected um, emerging structures that come out of these fields uh, that both uh, provide some uh, sense of humility that we have to have about our current understanding and ability to control uh, networks, but also represent in some ways uh, the increasing imperative to have peripheral vision, uh, to scan, to look for opportunities that might emerge uh, from uh, these uh, 
dynamic evolutionary structures uh, that uh, you just really wouldn't look for if you were taking the typical or the old-fashioned firm-centric, everything-happens-at-corporate-headquarters view of strategy. So we really do, I think, learn an awful lot uh, from them. And then I would just add the one additional point that uh, it is it really was uh, uh, a huge source of satisfaction to Jerry and me in looking at this book uh, to see the interplay going back from business and economic activities uh, and the points of intersection with uh, some of the natural sciences and some of the artificial intelligence work in the sense that uh, when you really view the agents in the system, which you must in economics and business terms, as purposeful, as profit-oriented, or let's just say as pursuing their own uh, their own particular objectives at the nodes in these networks, uh, it begins to add a certain new sense, a new set of directions uh, to the kinds of models and interpretations that one might entertain about biology or about uh, some of the other systems that we, we looked at. So uh, there are, I think, uh, there were some interesting points of intersection and light that materialized back the other way as well. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Jerry, uh, you you point out in the book that there are perils that companies face by neglecting network effects. And one example you give in the book is the current financial crisis. Could you explain that, please? Well, primarily a a lot of uh, what we have seen recently in terms of financial crisis is uh, the uh, the speed in which... uh, things happened and the magnitude of this, and this is primarily the results of the interconnected world. Um, uh, there, you know, there is no economy that is basically protected from this. And whereas we may have different countries that the uh, crisis started differently there, in terms of time it started like in the U.S. with uh, the, the housing and uh, the subprime uh, problem that moved to the financial institution, and then move to the real economy. Uh, other countries that may have started with the real, with the financial uh, sector, um, uh, like in some of the Swiss banks that basically just bought the U.S. sub mortgages and the like. But primarily, it is the interdependencies around the world of all the financial institutions that led to this incredible, very fast and uh, steep reaction. Um, so I think you see it there, and um, it's something that we definitely have to learn from. So it, uh, whereas uh, uh, there is a lot to learn from the previous financial crisis, that uh, the, whether it is the Japanese crisis or even going back to the Great Depression, the conditions have changed because of technology, because of uh, the, the speed of communication today, uh, the the speed of um, interaction among the various parties involved in the any activity today is so much greater and so much bigger and faster, and that the reason we see such a, a big crisis. Yeah, Jerry, uh, if I could just add two additional points to the peril dimension of that, um, I would point to the papers in in uh, this volume on pandemics. Uh, or infectious diseases, if you will, and the, the spread thereof through networks uh, on uh, some of the issues on the 
uh, health side uh, related to development economies, the papers in East Africa on, on AIDS, and both on the positive and negative side with respect to that. And then uh, the, the paper, very interesting paper by Boaz Ganor on terrorism networks. And all of these really indicate, um, uh, together with the more positive notions about peripheral scanning and so on that are a part of the book, uh, that uh, networks are with us and are affecting us both in business and, and elsewhere in ways that are that were simply uh, not a part of the picture when there were fewer people on the planet, lower interactions in terms of communications and economic interactions, and a whole lot lower in terms of the travel interconnections. You put all of that together on, on the board, and if you're a life insurance company, uh, and you weren't frightened by uh, the prospect of, uh, of uh, the consequences of a pandemic uh, breaking out. Uh, you weren't probably, uh, you probably need to read this book and understand a little bit more about kind of the modeling and uh, the realities of the interdependencies that Jerry has indicated on the peril side. So that, those are just three examples from the book that I think are uh, equally important in terms of uh, the interconnected interdependency issues. Oh, absolutely, and I'm, and I'm sure that uh, you know uh, people will find those lessons uh, very illuminating. Now, to to move away from the risk issue to opportunities, you also point out that the this book is not a, just a passive academic summary, but it's intended to transform the way that businesses use, build, and profit from networks. So, what would be some positive opportunities that businesses could derive uh, by harnessing networks to create value and to identify new opportunities? Well, let, let, let me start with a few examples, and then, Paul, if you can add some. Uh, let's look at the whole area of supply chain um, and for the concept that we proposed of network orchestration, which primarily came from the work of Lee and Fong. And... Uh, how do you leverage resources and expertise around the world, uh, which are not only necessarily cheaper, but also many times uh, better quality and some unique resources. And um, so there are huge opportunities in terms of uh, looking at the entire world as the arena of operation and orchestrating a network of companies that can help you deliver uh, the offering the benefit that you want to do. In this respect, the traditional firm-centric view of uh, management that talks about the uh, core competence of the firm is really being replaced by the fact that you don't necessarily need all these competences. You need to be able to connect to the right competences around the world. And the new competences for the firm are then primarily in the area of ability to connect, competence for innovation, and competence for learning which is a different set of competences one looks at. You can also look in terms of what happened with the, the latest presidential election and uh, how President Obama used so effectively uh, the network primarily to try to, to win the election. And he's basically the political kind of science, if you want to, or the, the political reality that he instituted there is now being viewed as a model by most companies who are trying to imitate this and say, how do we leverage, you know, kind of the, the networks out there? So there are tons of examples, and uh, almost in every one of the chapters in the book, 
there is an effort at least to identify also what are some of the opportunities um, that involved in our network thinking. Yes. Uh, I would add uh, just a, a couple of things uh, to to that um, um, array of uh, interesting notions. First, of course, is <laughs> Jerry was too modest to mention this himself, but the, the wonderful example uh, that his uh, chapter with the two uh, Fung uh, uh, brothers, um, Lee and Fung, uh, uh, really is a, a wonderful example of a network-based company. And increasingly, we're seeing companies in the pharma industry, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, certainly the textile industry, uh, in generally in knowledge-based or advertising-related industries. We note Google and, and so forth that are uh, that that have gotten clear religion about the network-based model of the firm, and see business models that are. Uh, that are in some ways automatic or, or promoted by their own dynamism, uh, and that the key is to enable, uh, not to control, uh, to allow uh, emerging uh, profit structures to come forth uh, rather than to try to dictate. Uh, those, those kinds of changes in attitude and view are, are represented throughout uh, the book. And I just mentioned two other areas that I, uh, I've seen now Increasingly, in several discussions over the past year since we put this book uh, into press, uh, certainly in the health arena, uh, the notion uh, that um, uh, that there are some there are some deep specialties in healthcare, uh, from hygiene to nutrition uh, to well-being to the insurance part of it to the healthcare provision part. All of these uh, are, of course, deep specialties on their own. Putting those together in an effective way focused on a particular patient, client, person, consumer uh, is a network-based phenomena. The paper by C.K. Prahalad in the book makes pretty clear uh, some of the promises in, in that direction, and not just for developed countries, but also developing countries. Uh, I've seen that same thing uh, touted increasingly for various other uh, health applications in just in the past year. And the second area uh, is um, uh, the, the work in innovation, uh, both internal innovation. There are several papers on internal innovation that is uh, not just about the 24-hour, 24-7 uh, uh, get innovation pockets of innovation going across internally across the planet, but actually in terms of being open uh, to uh, network-based innovation of various kinds of models that are laid out uh, in the book from an internal point of view, an internal company perspective, but also externally uh, the idea of having um, social networks and others uh, uh, that, um, that are empowered by, uh, by consumers, especially the younger generation, if I may say, uh, they're, they're simply flying. They're, they're off at speed of light or something perhaps I, could, I should call it warp speed, but in any case, they're, they're definitely far in excess in terms of the ideas generated, far in excess of the, uh, of the, the, the very, let's call it, low level of speed of generation of ideas and accumulation and realization of those of the traditional model. Let, let me try to kind of uh, add two quick things on this last point because I think it's very important. Uh, every company recognizes the centrality of the consumer and that you have to start designing strategy by understanding kind of the evolving needs of your target consumers and the like. 
Um, the reality is that many companies are talking about this but not doing it. Uh, yet the the emergence of uh, networks of consumers and the increased importance of uh, social networking in life in general uh, leads to a new way and opportunity really to capitalize and truly implement a customer-centric strategy where you realize that you have empowered consumers and they are part of your network. And one of the major challenges facing companies is that the more you move into the network area and you start orchestrating a network, you realize you don't have the control, the traditional control that you had. And that's probably the biggest, one of the biggest challenges facing management. How do I achieve my objective in a network world when I don't have the control I used to have in the old world of a firm-centric uh, world? And this consumer involvement is part of um, the open innovation, but open innovation is actually even broader than this. And you have companies such as P&G, they're trying to have over 50% of their new product and service offering come from outside the firm. You have companies such as Innocentive, which is basically the eBay of innovations, that is a network of 170,000 experts that are uh, ready to solve problems that any company has and basically l links their network of experts with companies that seek advice. So there are tons of development in these areas, and uh, hopefully management, managers all over the world will start uh, understanding them and try to redesign their strategies to, to capitalize on these opportunities and avoid the risk involved in networks. Uh, Paul, uh, one of the other interesting papers I found in the, in the book is the one by Colin Crook, who examines network effects against the background of complexity theory. Right. Uh, could you explain that a little bit, please? The uh, complexity issues that uh, Colin and others have uh, studied uh, um, over the past decade or so arise uh, in part from the... Uh, from the field of artificial intelligence in which um, fairly simple rules uh, and competencies attached to nodes, uh, when they interact with other nodes, to think of them as other artificial agents, give rise to fairly interesting uh, systemic or macro effects. And you can just think of... Uh, of cars or people or artificial agents bumping into one another and then moving off in particular directions to suit their needs, uh, depending on what it is that they're equipped to do, how far they can see one from another into the distance, uh, and what their particular motives are in, in terms of uh, accrual, accumulation or, or, uh, or consumption, uh, these artificial networks have really uh, shown very interesting complexity effects in terms of uh, the ability to show when groups of uh, such artificial agents run off a cliff, lemming-like, and end up in a disastrous place, when they end up uh, nourishing one another, things of that sort. So Colin is a, a real master of that, and he has, of course, uh, got um, years of experience also watching uh, 
uh, people run off cliffs. Uh, he was the technology, chief technology officer at Citibank for a number of years, so uh, we won't blame him with the current crisis. He, uh, uh, but he, he watched a number of those exercises occur, and he was really inspired by that to comment on uh, the emerging science of complexity theory, which attempts to sort out um, uh, exactly what elements of networks, their connectedness or uh, the lack of uh, acuity or visibility of agents in them, uh, what sorts of things lead to risks and what sorts of things lead to benefit. And just as one example that uh, to stop speaking, if you will, artificial intelligence Greek about this, uh, is uh, the current uh, financial uh, crisis. And the question uh, that one that that, had, that is being posed very actively there, and I'm sure you know from your interviews, Mukul, is well, what at what what level of regulation uh, and what sort of regulation should be required uh, in order to uh, both have the benefits of innovation from new financial instruments uh, such as those we've seen actually help a lot in the insurance area. How do you get the benefits of that innovation without having such highly leveraged uh, activities or activities that, are, that have uh, the maturity of liability and assets so much out of whack that uh, they're not able to survive shocks? How do you get that, that, that balancing act done? Uh, what level of regulation should be put into place to, if you will, assure that network effects, if they're there, are not so severe that shocks uh, don't turn the system over. And, of course, all of that is about um, how it is that one gets sufficient visibility out from the network, net from the, from the firms that are a part of this, from their balance sheets and their asset, and their asset uh, positions, uh, to actually uh, evaluate uh, the risks uh, that they're confronting. And if you do that using the old-fashioned firm-centric VAR measures, value-at-risk measures, which stood us in good stead for a long time, uh, you, you simply cannot get the job done. So what new measures have to be put into place? And I tell you that complexity theory and the whole issue of just how much, by way of assets and capital adequacy or solvency, needs to be in place uh, given the mix of effective network interdependencies that are a part of these instruments or implied by them, uh, that is center stage in the current debate on regulation and re-regulation of the financial sector. So that, that's an example where I think you know, what Colin has to say, both in terms of having a humility about what we know about these matters, but also about the fact that these effects, these network contagion, and emerging structural effects of networks, uh, they simply cannot be dealt with by looking at one individual or single individual nodes. You really have to accommodate them at the network level. Uh, that's great. But to uh, take just one final question, Jerry, I wonder, based on everything that you and Paul have said, uh, how can organizations uh, redesign themselves and change their approach uh, to lead uh, in a networked world? It's a great question. Um, that's really the, the challenge. And I think, uh, first of all, hopefully, they have to challenge their current mental models because most firms, there are obviously exceptions, 
P&G is becoming more of a network organization because of the open innovation. The Enfong is uh, basically evolved as a network company. But with few exceptions, most companies are still the management, their structure, their thinking is very firm-centric. So they have to challenge the mental model of a firm-centric versus a network one. Uh, we hope, both Paul and I hope very much, that the book will help people challenge this mental model by bringing in concepts, findings, as well as methods from diverse fields and suggesting some specific areas of application, I think this will help in this area. Now, having challenged the, the mental model, I think the, the challenge then is, okay, so what do I do next? Let's say I buy your argument and I believe that network uh, thinking is what we need. Then my suggestion, at least, is to identify those areas that will allow you to leverage your current uh, resources and expertise by moving from a firm-centric to a network-centric. Uh, in my view, this is typically in the areas of establishing consumer networks and uh, leveraging them in terms of getting consumers as co-designers, co-producers, co-marketers, the consumers as advocates and promoters of product. Uh, and services. The other major area will be in the open innovation area. But uh, let a firm identify where are the big opportunities they face and try to identify and design an experiment of doing it. I'll give you a quick example of a company doing it right now. They developed a very large platform, technology platform, internally. And uh, the projection for, if you look at development, will take them another four years to try to fully uh, develop it to be able to go to market. And it's crazy in today's environment to wait another four years after they have been already five years in development and that's not a pharmaceutical product. Uh, so they're moving now into an open architecture and creating a social network of their employees and other divisions, customers, <coughs> prospects, and developers to join and basically understand the platform and start developing product and services on this platform. So I think companies should engage in these experiments and assuming the experiments and hopefully they'll work, they'll learn from this something and be able then to move and expand further in the, in the firm. Uh, Paul, Jerry, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Well, Mukul, thanks a lot. And uh, we were really look forward to uh, seeing the, the results of uh, all this cogitation that is going on in producing this book. <laughs> we appreciate your help in getting the word out. Thanks, Mukul. We really appreciate it. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.